The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. On February 1st, 1966, hundreds of spectators lined up outside the Dade County Courthouse in Miami, Florida, hoping to gain admission to a murder trial that had taken the area by storm. The courthouse was filled to maximum capacity, mostly women, eager to catch a glimpse of one of the accused, Candace Mosler, a socialite and wealthy heiress, taking center stage in a trial so salacious People under the age of 21 were barred from entering the courtroom. Join me now as we take a look into the bizarre case of a successful business tycoon, his picture-perfect wife, and the unimaginable motive behind his violent death. You'll learn how the veneer of high society perfection hit a twisted taboo that would eventually destroy a family and shock an entire nation. Joining me to bring this case that captured the attention of the media is Christina Crane, former longtime co-host of Sarasota, Florida's popular WSRZ morning show. Well, Tyler, working in the media for 29 years, you report on a lot of different kinds of cases, crimes of passion and revenge, greed, betrayal. And this is definitely a case that had all of those reasons and so much more. This story back in 1966 was so sensational that authorities were forced to use crowd control at the trial. And what spectators heard was testimony. It was full of lies, lust, forbidden love, and even murder. I mean, who wouldn't want to be witness to that? Mind you, these were the days before cameras in the courtroom. So the only way everyone had to keep up with it if you weren't in the courtroom was reading the newspaper. And of course, the newspapers worked overtime trying to quench that public thirst. It's very much like reality TV of today. People watch and they think to themselves, wow, whew, I'm glad my life isn't that bad. At least I didn't murder anybody or do what that woman did. But before we get to how the story ends, we have to take you back to where it begins. On a frigid night in January 1957, when Chicago police officers discovered a car buried in a snowbank with people trapped inside. Up front with the driver was a baby in a bloody snowsuit. In the back were four small children, barefoot, huddled together for warmth, and nearly frozen to death. When officers asked what had happened, the man began to eerily relay the events that had brought them to their current situation. And the story he told was nearly impossible to believe, but sadly, all too real. The driver's name was Leonard Glenn, and three years earlier, he'd been committed to a mental hospital by his father for alcoholism. But while he was in the hospital, his wife Betty had been left to raise their four children alone, with another baby on the way. 
She'd pleaded for her husband's release so he could help support the family. The hospital agreed, and Leonard was released. Soon, Betty gave birth to baby Alexander, and before long, she was pregnant again with a sixth child. Unfortunately, Leonard's mental health began declining again. On January 9, 1957, after a night of fighting and paranoia, Leonard completely snapped and shot his sleeping wife in the head with a rifle. When the children woke up, Leonard told them their mother wasn't well and fed them breakfast. Six-year-old Martha, five-year-old Daniel, four-year-old Christopher, and two-year-old Edward kept themselves occupied in their cramped apartment that day. They could see their dead mother lying on a cot in the living room. Martha even tried to wake her up. At some point, Leonard attacked six-month-old Alexander with a knife. With the baby now critically injured, Leonard packed up all the children into the car and drove them aimlessly around Chicago, eventually crashing into a snowbank. When the police found them and heard Leonard's shocking confession, they leapt into action, calling for an ambulance, handcuffing the father, and bringing the shivering, frostbitten children to the warmth and safety of their police car. During Leonard's confession, he told police, I cut the baby because I didn't think my wife was dead, and if I couldn't kill her, I was going to kill the baby. Tragically, after arriving at the hospital, baby Alexander died from his injuries. Leonard was soon arrested and found guilty of murder and committed to a state hospital. He would never see his children again. The prospects for the four surviving Glenn children were grim. Though they'd been taken in by relatives for the time being, the home was already overcrowded and it was likely they'd be split up and then placed into foster care. This is where the sensational details of this case really begin to unfold with the four Chicago children making national news. This is also where Texas millionaire Jack Mossler enters the scene. For anyone who'd heard about the tragedy, the thought of the siblings being split apart was heartbreaking. A sentiment shared by Jack, who immediately sprang into action, enlisting the help of his wife, Candace. The wealthy couple decided they'd open up their home and raise the Glenn children as their own. And by the end of January, just weeks after the tragic events, all four siblings were placed in the care of Jack and Candace Mossler, their new foster parents. The children were soon taken to their new home in Houston, Texas, a mansion in the exclusive neighborhood of River Oaks. Eight months later, Martha, Daniel, Christopher, and Edward were officially adopted by the Mosslers, and it seemed after a cruel twist of misfortune that the children had been gifted with a second chance at a happy life. But just who was this benevolent millionaire in shining armor who'd rescued the poor children? As it turned out, he'd come from humble beginnings himself, though far less tragic. Jack Mossler had been born Jacques Moscovici on May 5, 1895, in the port city of Galatz, Romania. But not long after his birth, his family decided to emigrate to America due to the increasingly political climate and the ever-growing persecution of Jewish people in the region. They boarded the SS Lake Ontario and set sail for America, a ship in such bad shape it was scrapped for metal after the family's voyage. 
Eventually, Jacques' family settled in Buffalo, New York. But after his parents separated in 1908, his mother moved him and the children to Chicago. To supplement the family income, young Jacques dropped out of school and sold candy and newspapers on the street. It took smarts and guts to make it on the tough streets of Chicago. And so Jacques learned how to hustle by watching other hustlers. When Jacques became an adult, he headed down south to New Orleans and began working as a loan manager for a car dealership. He also ditched his foreign-sounding name and began calling himself Jack Mossler. The decision to change his name wasn't uncommon for new citizens attempting to assimilate into a new country, and Jack was determined to become a true American. In 1917, when Jack was 21, he registered for the World War I draft and married 17-year-old Devlin Kaiser, with whom he had four daughters. In 1918, Jack incorporated Mossler Motor Exchange, becoming a car rental entrepreneur. Then, in the late 1920s, he opened a lending venture, Mossler Acceptance Corporations, with offices in New Orleans, Dallas, and Houston. Repossessions, lawsuits, and bad blood were par for the course in his line of work, but afforded his family a lifestyle that many people could only dream of. By 1944, Jack moved his family to one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in the area, complete with a full-time housekeeper. After firmly establishing himself as a member of the New Orleans business community, Jack Mossler had everything a man could want. Well, not quite, as it turned out. One day in 1947, a beautiful 27-year-old woman named Candace Weatherby walked into the busy offices of the Mossler Motor Exchange. She was a volunteer fundraiser for the city's opera association, and she was determined to get a donation from Jack. But Jack wasn't exactly a fan of going to the opera. Each time he'd ever gone before, he'd fallen asleep during the show, and he told Candace that. But she insisted, and with her charm and flirty demeanor, she was actually able to convince him to write her a check for $25. Neither of them knew it at the time, but Candace would get a whole lot more out of Jack than a measly $25. Candace Weatherby was born in the small farming town of Buchanan, Georgia on February 18, 1920. The sixth youngest of 10 children, Candace's family lived a humble life with her father providing for them through farming. And while there was no telephone or radio in the Weatherby home, Candace's big imagination kept her entertained by playing make-believe. But sadly, at age 12, Candace's mother died of complications two days after giving birth to a stillborn baby. Unable to cope with the incredible loss, Candace's father turned to alcohol and eventually suffered a complete breakdown. He left the children in the care of their maternal grandparents. And despite the hardships Candace experienced at such a young age, or maybe because of them, she developed aspirations of fame and fortune. She wanted to move to the big city, maybe become a fashion designer. But her grandfather, a Mormon bishop, had more practical plans for the teenager. At 17 years old, Candace was forced to drop out of school and marry a man chosen for her by her grandfather, Albert Johnson, 11 years her senior, 
and a superintendent for a concrete company. By age 20, Candace had given birth to a son, Norman Weatherby Johnson, but found herself unhappy with her life. The lack of excitement, tight funds, and a husband with no energy to give her the attention she longed for. It just wasn't the kind of life she'd envisioned for herself. So at the beginning of World War II, Candace decided to volunteer as a hostess for the United Service Organization, or USO, an organization that provides entertainment for American troops. And it was here when Candace found her first real opportunity to move up in the world, way up in the world, when she met a machine gun instructor by the name of Winthrop Rockefeller. Yes, those Rockefellers. Winthrop was the grandson of John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men who ever lived. And it was this relationship that opened the door for Candace to climb the social ladder, from poor Georgian farm girl all the way up to high society. Candace and Winthrop developed an extremely close relationship and began having an affair in secret. By 1943, Candace was pregnant with her second child, and many believe, although it's never been confirmed, that Winthrop was the father. Later that year, her marriage dissolved, and Candace was free to pursue opportunities she felt were long overdue. And that's where her unverifiable accounts of stardom and grandiosity began. According to Candace, she turned down Hollywood studio contracts, went to New York for modeling and fashion design, and opened a New Orleans modeling agency, a school she named the Candace Modeling School. But as would be customary for Candace's exploits, it didn't matter if she didn't have any proof of these experiences or claims. You just had to take her word for it, which the newspapers were more than willing to do. Throughout the mid-1940s, Candace became somewhat of a local socialite sensation, famous for being famous. Whether through hard work or a wealthy benefactor, Candace seemed to be living the life of relative luxury, finding herself the free time to volunteer as a fundraiser for the New Orleans Opera Foundation, which is how she eventually came to cross paths with Jack Mosler in 1947. At the time Jack had met Candace, he was still married to his wife Evelyn, but by May 12, 1949, he was divorced. And by May 24, 1949, 12 days later, he was remarried to Candace. After getting married, Jack decided to leave his ex-wife and four daughters behind in New Orleans and start fresh in Houston, Texas with Candace and her two children, finally settling in the wealthy and exclusive area of River Oaks. Life at 3699 Willowick was magnificent, a three-story, 10,000-square-foot mansion with as many as 28 rooms and boasting a seven-car garage full of luxury vehicles set on just over an acre of beautiful grounds. The sprawling property sported a tennis court, a heated pool, and a backyard perfect for fundraisers. It was the perfect backdrop for a woman all ready to play the part of a wealthy wife. Jack spent his time focusing on business ventures, but Candace positively flourished as a socialite. She served on the theater board and was a committee member of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. She was also known for her involvement in the arts, 
fundraising, and considerable social graces. In 1957, with six children between them already, the Mosslers were still prepared to open their home in Atmore. That's when they officially adopted the four children orphaned by Leonard Glenn. It seemed as if the children who'd once suffered so terribly were now blessed beyond belief. The children had no way of knowing that an eerily similar situation would occur just a few years later. By now, it was well known that the Mosslers, especially Candace, were willing to open their home to those in need. And in 1961, Candace's older sister living in Alabama, Elizabeth Powers, called in a favor. She needed some help with her son, 19-year-old Melvin Lane Powers. Although the six-foot, four-inch teenager was considered handsome, his acne-scarred face and menacing demeanor were intimidating to most, which seemed to go hand-in-hand with the kind of activities Melvin was involved in. After finishing high school and falling in with a gang of con artists, Melvin defrauded an elderly man out of $20,000, landing him in jail on a 90-day sentence with two years probation. Worried he'd get himself into more trouble, Melvin's mother Elizabeth immediately called her well-to-do sister for help. Was it possible she and Jack were willing to take in Melvin to keep him out of trouble? They were. Just in time for Thanksgiving, Candace wired her sister enough money to buy Melvin a plane ticket to Houston, and after arriving, Candace gave her nephew a room, a car, and convinced her husband Jack to give him a job doing repossessions. Another poor soul set on the right track by the good graces of the Mosslers. By 1963, the picture-perfect veneer over Candace and Jack's relationship had crumbled. The 24-year age difference between them, the stress of high-powered business dealings, time apart, philandering, it had all wreaked havoc on their marriage. That's when Jack made the decision to stay married, but separate from Candace. He moved to Florida, leaving Candace and the rest of the family behind. It was now 1964, and Jack was nearing his 70s, looking to simplify his life, which is why he chose to lease an apartment at the Governor's Lodge on Key Biscayne in Miami. In June of that year, Candace and four of their children, Rita, Martha, Edward, and Chris, planned a visit to see Jack, which he was looking forward to. On June 30th, 1964, while staying with Jack at his apartment in Key Biscayne, Miami, Candace decided that 12.45 a.m. was the perfect time to pack the children up in the car and run some errands. But when Candace and the kids arrived at the apartment around 4 a.m., they discovered a grisly scene. Jack laying near the balcony in a pool of blood, wearing only a nightshirt, wrapped in an orange blanket. By 4.45 a.m., Rita placed a call to Jack's personal physician. When he picked up, Rita frantically explained that something horrible had happened to her father and that he might be dead. In the background, Candace was hysterical. But when the doctor asked if they'd call police or an ambulance even, Rita replied, no, that her mother was just so upset and that she'd been told to call him first. Why would someone who just discovered their husband lying in a pool of blood 
Ask her daughter to call a doctor instead of emergency responders and police. Instead, the doctor called the police himself. Just the beginning of many bizarre events that would unfold into a murder case for the ages. Less than 10 minutes after Rita placed the call to the doctor, police arrived at the scene, a well-to-do island community where homicides were rare. The first deputy to arrive at the apartment found Candace outside, acting as though the murder of her husband was an inconvenience that she'd like to be done with as quickly as possible. After being led inside the apartment, the deputy found Jack, lying on the floor covered in an orange blanket, still clutching the balcony drapes, surrounded by blood. When the deputy lifted the blanket, he could see that the back of his head was caved in. He'd also been brutally stabbed multiple times. This was a case of overkill, plain and simple. As the deputy looked over the crime scene, Candace cried out, Oh, Jack, Jack, what have you done? To the deputy, it sounded as though Candace was blaming her husband for his own murder. When detectives arrived, they found Candace's behavior equally suspicious. With her calm demeanor and lack of questions, setting off alarm bells that rang louder and louder as the case wore on. Candace would explain her strange nighttime outing of errands with the kids, something that seemed completely bizarre in itself. Why would a mother take her children out at such a late hour? There was also the matter of Jack's deceased body covered with a blanket. Why would the killer risk the time it took to cover the body if not for the simple reason of sparing the family from the site of violence that they were sure to discover. When asked if Jack had any enemies, Candace was more than willing to expound on just how many people hated him for his business practices. Though she ultimately theorized the motive behind the murder must have been a robbery. But just from looking at the crime scene, robbery didn't seem to be an obvious motive beginning with the simple fact there was no signs of a forced entry. There was also no proof, besides Candace's word, that anything was missing. Instead, the sheer ferocity of the attack pointed to something else. A murder driven by overwhelming emotion. When detectives pointed this out to Candace, she was quick to jump to another outlandish theory, hinting to detectives that Jack might have had some relationships that had led to his death, relationships with men. At that time, branding Jack Mossler as gay during his own murder investigation was not only inaccurate, it was a smear campaign that would needlessly complicate the investigation and eventual trial. Candace knew full well it wasn't a favorable time to be on the fringe, because in the 1960s, people who expressed desire outside of heterosexuality were often met with discrimination, persecution, and violence. Outside of the information detectives received from Candace herself, the investigation at the crime scene revealed several clues. Clinched in Jack's fist was a single strand of hair. Also notable were two highball glasses, one containing three cigarette butts with multiple prints, including a palm print. A blood-soaked towel was also left in the sink. Several neighbors would also report that shortly before the murder, they'd seen a red convertible 
matching the description of Candace's car idling in the parking lot. Later, they heard Jack's dog barking and a commotion inside the apartment. The apartment manager had heard this same disturbance, as well as hearing someone running down the stairs, followed by spotting a man jumping into a white vehicle. Coincidentally, Candace had been seen driving a white vehicle just days before the murder. Another witness also saw someone fleeing the governor's lodge, a man described as large with long dark hair, hopping into a white sedan before speeding away. It wasn't a lot to go on, but the death of a Texas millionaire worth $33 million, over $303 million in today's currency, would get a lot of attention. During their investigation, police would later discover Candace had, in fact, been in possession of a white Chevrolet sedan, swiftly located in the parking garage of Miami International Airport. After telling authorities that a household staff member had taken the vehicle off her hands, Candace retained a lawyer. And then there was a break in the case. Detectives had managed to match one of the prints left behind at the crime scene to a suspect who wasn't supposed to be in Florida that night, Candace's nephew, Melvin Powers. As it turned out, Melvin had flown in from Houston to Miami the day before the murder stopped at a bar between the airport and Jack's apartment around 9 p.m. Before leaving, Melvin got a glass bottle of Coke to go, then stopped by the same bar again around midnight and asked to use a payphone before flying back to Houston the following morning. While searching for clues at Jack's places of business, they found no evidence of shady dealings, murder plots, affairs, or gay relationships. What they did find was Jack's diary locked inside a desk drawer. Inside the diary, they found the final clue they needed to make their next move. Jack's last entry stated, it looks as if I may have to kill Candace and Mel if they don't kill me first. Certain they had their man, police arrested Melvin Powers on July 3rd, 1964. Although he quickly confessed to the murder, Melvin hadn't been read his rights, which would become a problem later on. When telling part of the conversation, according to the book No One is Perfect by Ron Smith, was when the interviewers asked Melvin why he hadn't stabbed the dog. After all, the barking was what had initially drawn attention to the apartment during the murder in the first place. Melvin's response? The family is very close to that dog. There was no reason to hurt him. But apparently, Melvin hadn't felt the same way about his aunt's husband. Before Candace could be questioned again, she left Miami to seek treatment for migraines at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. But even without Candace's cooperation, authorities were about to discover a bonanza of evidence that lent a new twisted element to a story that no one could have predicted. As investigators delved further into the murder case, speaking to people closest to Jack, it was finally revealed that his 42-year-old wife, Candace, had begun an affair with someone while they were married. What was shocking wasn't so much the affair, but who the affair was with. Candace's own 20-year-old nephew, Melvin, an affair that began in 1962, shortly after he'd moved into the Willowick Mansion. 
Candace had been no stranger to affairs and was known to be a flirtatious woman, longing for attention and especially the kind of man that met her high sex drive. Melvin, for his part, had a healthy libido and saw how advantageous it would be to become the paramour of a rich, older woman, even if she were his aunt. And Candace was all too happy to bankroll her nephew's lifestyle, as long as it meant she was satisfied in return. But if Candace was going to be Melvin's sugar mama, there were a few tweaks to his appearance she wanted to make first. And the opportunity for some adjustments came when Melvin required surgery to have his tonsils removed. It was at that time Candace paid surgeons to do a little extra work as well. Some minor plastic surgery to pin back Melvin's ears, as well as having him circumcised. She also requested his skin be resurfaced to treat his acne scars. To anyone who'd listen, Melvin bragged he could get anything he wanted from Candace, all thanks to his prowess in the bedroom. Eventually, their affair became an open secret, horrifying residents in the exclusive River Oaks community. But to Candace and Mel, they felt no shame, flaunting their relationship with no intentions of ending the perverse relationship even when Jack found out. But these weren't just rumors circulating about. Photos and love letters found at Melvin's place of business would also prove the affair. So why had Jack given Melvin a job? Was it because Jack hoped providing Melvin with an income of his own would cause him to tire of Candace and eventually move on? Ultimately, in 1963, Jack forcibly evicted Melvin from the Willowick mansion, although he didn't leave quietly. Jack considered divorce at the time, but decided against it, hoping to avoid negative publicity and losing half his fortune to Candace. Candace, too, considered divorce, but after realizing she'd only get $200,000, decided not to. Instead, Jack left Houston and the whole shameful situation behind, eventually settling in Miami, leaving Candace in Houston on a $5,000 a week allowance for home upkeep, which is equivalent to about $50,000 a week today. But it simply wasn't enough for Candace. She knew if Jack died, she'd receive nearly all of his substantial fortune, the perfect motive for murder. And in July of 1964, that's exactly what happened. The bulk of Jack's estate was left to Candace, naming her sole executrix and trustee. After a year of investigations and Candace ducking them at every turn, on July 20th, 1965, authorities had enough evidence to charge Candace Mossler for the first-degree murder of her husband, Jack Mossler, right alongside her nephew, Melvin Powers. But both pleaded not guilty and were released on bond. The money for the defense would come from the wealth Jack had built over the course of his life, paid for by his own business. The trial of the era began in March of 1966 with the prosecution of Candace Mossler and her nephew, Melvin Powers, becoming a media sensation. And like we mentioned before, this trial was so salacious You'd have to be 21 to even get into the courthouse, let alone what middle America probably thought about the case. And America was shocked. 
accusations of forbidden homosexual love, breaking the social moray of incest, greed, literally millions of dollars and millions of reasons for a motive for murder. You had a glamorous, flamboyant defendant who is a socialite. She ran in circles that most of us would only dream of. And she was accused of this brutal murder of her husband by her nephew lover. Compelling isn't even the right word for it. It was as if the trial had become a Hollywood stage. And Candace had always dreamt of that Hollywood stage. And coming in and out of the courtroom, she blew kisses to the media. She used her children as props to garner sympathy and dropped hints that her late husband preferred the company of men. Melvin, on the other hand, kept discreetly out of the spotlight. When confronted by reporters with allegations of adultery, incest, and murder, Candace replied charmingly with, Well, sir, no one is perfect. The prosecution appeared to have an open and shut case, but was dealt blow after blow, hampering them from the onset, with Melvin's confession being thrown out because he'd been questioned before being read his Miranda rights. Jack's diary entry was also inadmissible because the author was deceased and there was no way to authenticate his state of mind at the time he'd written it. Another setback was the fact that no murder weapon had been recovered. Candace also had an alibi that night. When police first arrived at Jack's apartment, the night Candace and their children found him dead, Candace explained she and the kids had been out. She said after they left, they went to the Hotel DuPont, where she bought some stamps and then dropped some bills in the mail. Then they headed to the hospital, where Candace claimed to have received treatment for her migraine headaches. There at the hospital, she received several phone calls from a male caller claiming to be her doctor. Then at approximately 3.45 a.m., Candace and the children left the hospital and returned to Jack's apartment not long after 4 a.m. As it turned out, Candace's visit to the hospital was verified, placing her somewhere else at the time of Jack's murder. In total, Candace and Melvin were represented by six lawyers, some of Houston's best defense attorneys, all ready to do battle against the prosecution for the freedom of their clients. Because the assets from her late husband's estate were frozen when she was arrested, Candace paid for her and Melvin's retainers with jewelry, diamonds, furs, and deeds, all given to her by Jack. The defense itself was a powerhouse team, and if their clients were on trial, they intended on mudding up the waters by putting everything the prosecution had on trial, too. No piece of evidence, and no person was safe not even the victim. They first started out by attacking Jack Mossler and dragging his name through the mud, followed by attacking the investigation, the prosecution's witnesses for their history with crime and addiction, their gender, their race, as well as the evidence itself with shrewd questioning. Although the evidence of the affair between Candace and Melvin was substantial, the pair weren't on trial for incest, a felony of the third degree at that time in Texas. Instead, they were on trial for murder, and their defense team made sure to press this point whenever necessary. Time and time again, Candace shouted at witnesses from her place at the defense table to the delight and entertainment of those watching the proceedings. 
When things became simply too much to bear, Candace would suffer dramatic medical emergencies requiring her to be carried from the courtroom. The only physical evidence linking either of them in the case was a palm print found in Jack's apartment that matched Melvin's. And although hundreds of other prints from multiple people had also been recovered from the crime scene, many of them couldn't be identified. Surprisingly, the strand of hair found clutched in Jack's hand also didn't match Melvin or Candace. The blood evidence in the car couldn't be matched to Jack either. Although there was plenty of other evidence, including photos and letters that could have been presented, it was all kept from jurors because the judge deemed it too graphic. In their own defense, Candace and Melvin never took the stand, a wise move on the part of their counsel. However, what couldn't be ignored was the ferociousness of the attack on Jack. An autopsy would reveal he'd endured up to 39 stab wounds, with blunt force trauma also to his skull. And then there was also the fact his body had been covered with a blanket. All signs pointed towards a crime of passion, something extremely personal. After six weeks of trial and three days of deliberation, the jury finally reached a resounding verdict. Not guilty. Candace then hugged and kissed every single juror in gratitude, but didn't stop there. After the acquittal, Candace kissed Melvin passionately before driving off in a gold Cadillac together. And that's where it ended. At least the possibility of Jack's murderer or murderers ever being brought to justice. Because the police and the DA office decided not to continue their investigation. After the trial, Candace Mosler and Melvin Powers returned back to Willowick Mansion together. Melvin opened Mel Powers Investment Builders, a development firm, and in December of 1967, they announced their happy news to the press. Melvin had bought a ring and proposed to his aunt. They were getting married, but the confusing bliss of their incestuous relationship didn't last. As larger than life as Candace was, she was aging and Melvin enjoyed the company of younger women. Three years later, they parted ways. Candace never left her River Oaks mansion in Houston, though her social invitations dropped significantly. She was later plagued with multiple lawsuits from her children over their inheritances, her former lawyer's non-payment, a personal secretary whose son had been accidentally shot and paralyzed by Candace's son, Edward who was 16 at the time of the incident. Candace had cut her adopted children out of her will, later filing multiple police reports reporting violent thefts, which could never be substantiated. But as time went on, speculation on her drug usage and deteriorating state of mind became regular gossip fodder, with plenty of doctors able to keep her prescriptions topped off. In 1971, Candace married Barnett Garrison, an electrician and businessman 18 years her junior. Reminiscently, in 1972, Barnett befell an equally strange fate to Candace's husband, Jack, when in the middle of the night, he mysteriously fell off the roof of the mansion and suffered severe brain damage and debilitating injuries. Although he recovered partially, Barnett remembered nothing about the accident. Requiring care for the rest of his life, his parents took him in, 
and Candace filed for divorce in 1974. On October 26, 1976, in a Miami Beach hotel room, 56-year-old Candace Mosler died of an accidental overdose of prescription drugs. She had special orders to have her body shipped to Arlington National Cemetery in Virginia and to be buried with her former husband, Jack Mosler. Her casket was placed on top of his, her name etched on the back of his gravestone. Melvin Powers attended her small funeral, accompanied by a young, blonde girlfriend. And at the age of 68, on October 8, 2010, Powers was found dead of undetermined causes at his home in Houston. He never married and had no children. Images of his home appear to show a photo of Candace above his fireplace. Candace Mosler started out life as a little girl with a big imagination. Her determination to rise above the poverty and hardships of her early life led her to wealth, status, and a family she could be proud of, all provided to her by Jack Mosler, a generous man willing to open his heart to those in need. Candace had everything she ever wanted, but still couldn't be satisfied, and her pathological greed not only culminated in the murder of her husband, but her own shocking downfall. In the end, Candace lost everyone and everything except the money she'd been willing to kill for and died alone in a hotel room, leaving behind a sad, sordid legacy of shame. Without the ability to appreciate the achievement of reaching her dreams, her life and the lives of all those who loved her became the ultimate nightmare. And now I'd like to introduce the podcast, Dark Windows. Hey, I'm Kevin, one half of the Dark Windows podcast. Join myself and my co-host, Kevin, every week. We bring you an episode ranging anywhere from aliens to war crimes, cryptids to history, and some of the craziest monsters on two and four legs. We have well over 200 episodes available wherever quality podcasts are sold. We also have a Patreon where we're closing in on 100 episodes. New episodes drop every Friday morning, and just remember that little E next to the description means we're probably not for everybody. Just because you can't see out into the dark doesn't mean the dark can't see into you. Follow the Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, Thanks for listening.